From Miami Law, I'm Annette Uges, and this is The Explainer. Welcome back to Season 10 of the Miami Law Explainer, the legal affairs podcast where Miami law experts lend context and historical relevance to today's headlines. The push for automated vehicles has been lauded as likely leading us to a safer driving future. On today's episode of Takeoffs and Landings, Associate Dean of Intellectual Life Charlton Copeland interviews William Wyden, who questions if the associated costs are fairly distributed across economic groups. Hi, this is uh, Charlton Copeland, and I'm here for our segment on takeoffs and landings on the Miami Explainer podcast. I am delighted to be here with my colleague, uh, William Wyden, who is the author of a recently published paper uh, that will be the subject of our conversation today. That paper is titled Highly Automated Vehicles and Discrimination Against Low-Income Persons. This article came out in the North Carolina Journal of Law and Technology uh, in the fall of 2022. And I'm really excited to uh, to talk to Bill about this. Thank you so much for being here, Bill. Thank you, Charlton, for inviting me. So there is so much here uh, that I'm excited about talking about. Um I want to give you the opportunity, however, to, to give us a short explanation of the article um, and, and, and its concerns. What particularly are you concerned about with respect to uh, uh, highly automated vehicles and, and low-income persons? What I'm most concerned about is that when we develop a new technology like automated driving, that we don't repeat a lot of the same mistakes that were made when we developed the uh, rail system Mm. and the highway system, which both uh, were developed by taking advantage of vulnerable populations. And it seemed to me, since we're in a brave new world uh, with people that should be more socially conscious, I'm very concerned that when they test automated vehicles, they don't do it disproportionately in a low-income neighborhood or other neighborhood at risk, which a company might have an economic incentive to do because any accidents caused in those areas could be projected to result in a lower damage award. So, first of all, I just want to applaud the the project. I think that... um, in an age in which we are, and, and the paper highlights this, thinking with with greater clarity about equity, um, it so often seems that concerns about equity are themselves fairly narrow, right? That we talk about equity in policing or we talk about equity in, in, in things that look obviously related to people of color or poor people. And, and what you've done in this paper is to say, look, <laughs> I want to talk about the regulatory space that absolutely has nothing necessarily to do with poor people in a unique way. But I want to identify uh, the ways in which they are put at special risk, even in 
this space. And so I I, I, I think that this is this is great because I think it's important um, for us to expand the, the, the contours of, of these conversations beyond the traditional spaces. Um, so the first thing I want to ask is, uh, and, and, and this goes back to your point about attempting to, to not uh, repeat the same mistakes. Why are we still trying to do this at the state level? Right. The, the, the article here sort of takes as its starting point a piece of legislation in the state of Pennsylvania. Why are we not doing this at the national level? Where are the national legislative and regulatory institutions? Well, uh, there are several parts to your question. Uh, historically, the federal government has regulated automotive equipment mm -hmm. and the states have been the space that have regulated things like driving. They license the vehicles, they license the drivers. And so when you're thinking about testing or driving on a highway, mm -hmm. that looks like the kind of activity that has traditionally been regulated by the states and not something that is focused on the particular characteristics of equipment. Now, the federal government, I believe, would have the power under the Commerce Clause to regulate all of this stuff. <laughs> One of the things that I'm hoping to do, and I think the federal government could play a big role in, they could say, look, if you want grants for your highways, you want things, you're going to have, as a matter of testing in your state, a plan that's an equitable testing plan. And if you don't do that, then there could be a penalty. They could even potentially require it. And President Biden just, uh, I think in January, had a directive directing agencies in the federal government to focus on equity issues. And so it fits exactly with the goals or one of the important goals of the current administration. Right. So I want to so I'm going to divide our conversation up in two, in part based on your paper. Right. So the sort of the, the things that might naturally fit within the federal regulatory space and the things that fit within the the state regulatory space. So let, let's go back to the federal regulatory space in the paper. You you highlight what you take to be the vulnerabilities of low-income uh, car buyers who, uh, whose, whose investment in a vehicle might outlive the actual useful life of that vehicle, both because of the technological sophistication of a highly automated vehicle, but also because of what you, you call a kind of absence of regulation about some of the essential equipment in that vehicle. What explains the failure at this point for us to get there in terms of the regulation on the on that equipment? Well, I think that it's commonly thought, though I can't prove it, that there's been a degree of regulatory capture of the uh, National Highway Transportation Safety Administration mm -hmm. by industry. Now, I'm not saying that it's, you know, under the table payments or right. things that are right. illegal, but that there's a feeling that they've gotten too cozy with the industry and that the industry really dictates what happens. There's another problem, which is the federal government does not have enough employees with the technical expertise mm -hmm. to make judgments about highly sophisticated equipment. And so they have to rely on, in effect, industry or 
industry groups that promulgate standards and other things of that sort. And so, uh, and there've been a lot of people, not just me, that have complained that the federal government has largely been absent. What you see the federal government doing currently is not regulating by affirmative regulation, but being reactive Mm -hmm. and trying to regulate this space by recalls. So I want to, I want to, I want to step outside of this paper for one second. I want to step outside of this paper and I want to step closer to, to, to Bill Wyden, the scholar and, and lawyer. That is to say, you started this conversation referencing uh, railroads. How might Bill Wyden, the, the, the commercial lawyer, the securities lawyer, say that um, this also mirrors the kinds of innovations and deregulatory postures around financial regulation that we've seen over, over in, in recent years. Well, let's take a look, for example, at derivatives mm-hmm. or uh, financial disclosures, right? There have been lots of movements to say hands off on regulation. Regulation will add deadweight costs to really good products. But you have seen with various financial crises, like with Enron, we ended up having heightened disclosure mm-hmm. uh, on financial statements. Uh, you had a great concern with derivatives in the financial meltdown of 2008 mm-hmm. and all of the innovative products. And so it seems to me that the pattern is we have something that's potentially very useful, like a derivative, which mm-hmm. can be used properly or misused. Uh, and because it's new and because it's useful, we don't want to delay its introduction into the marketplace. Right. We want people to enjoy it right away. And there's a concern that if you regulate, you'll be adding costs and and inhibit development. Uh, but time and time again, when we make that judgment, right. we later end up having a problem. You had that same problem back in the 80s with the savings and loan crisis mm-hmm. when you had a problem where interest rates had inverted. And so a lot of the savings and loans were struggling financially because their money they earned on their fixed rate mortgages couldn't pay the floating rate that they owed depositors. And so, in fact, then there was active deregulation, which allowed them to invest in risky products like investment bonds. Okay, that was a huge mistake. And so here we have something that's obviously potentially dangerous. Okay, and there's a space for active regulation. Note that my proposal doesn't do anything to inhibit the development of the technology. It's really protective of the industry, right? I don't want to have bad headlines for a good technology that says uh, automated vehicle owners don't care about uh, communities of color. Right. If you had an accident. I would like them to say, look, accidents are accidents. They're going to happen. But in this case, we took great care to make sure that the distribution of risk with this was not disproportionate on any disadvantaged community. And that seems to me that in any potentially explosive event, it would take the temperature down. They would say, at least you considered Uh, our community. And that's particularly important, Charlton, because a lot of the testing 
to make this technology better has to occur in an urban environment, right. Right. not a rural environment. Right. Right. And urban environments tend to have a higher concentration of communities of concern mm-hmm. where there have been historical disadvantages. Now, let me interrupt you on that yes. because the paper um, tracks uh, what is an increasing movement at the state level. We see it here in Florida. This question of the preemption. Oh, that's terrible. Municipal attempts to try to address the problem that you've pointed out. Could you could you tell us a little more about that? Because normally we think of preemption from the national government to the states, um, particularly in the auto context. But it's really interesting to, to, to think about how state preemption of municipal governments is working out in this. In okay, this. this is a deliberate strategy by the autonomous vehicle industry. They want to have no interference from local legislation. And it creates a phenomenon that I call autonomandering, like mm. gerrymandering. Mm. What ends up happening is if you have a state that's it's closely split between blue and red, okay, the the more rural red areas, if they have slightly more votes, they can vote for preemption mm-hmm. and get it passed and then effectively take away the power of, let's say, the blue voter in the urban environment to protect themselves. Right. And it makes no sense because, in fact, uh, local conditions dominate uh, a lot of the driving conditions. Right. And I can tell you that Philadelphia, in the Pennsylvania case, both Philadelphia and Pittsburgh objected to uh, the preemption. They wanted the ability to say, look, you have to communicate with us or we can regulate in some fashion. There could be parades, there could be religious holidays. Uh, One thing that I'm concerned about lately is also religious persecution. I don't know if I mentioned it in this paper, but I don't want you testing in certain Orthodox neighborhoods Mm -hmm. on a Friday evening when people are walking or to temple. Right. Okay, right. why do that? Right. And and why take away the power of the well, local and it's government? Even, it's even more perverse, given what you said, right? That is to say that the testing is not happening in rural areas. It's happening in these urban areas. And so to 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 refuse the input of the affected areas just seems completely uh, ridiculous. Well, I think it's just irresponsible. And I think it comes from almost a Pavlovian reaction against any kind of regulation, which I think is really wrong. Mm-hmm. Uh, one way that the federal government could put their toe into the regulatory environment is not worry about putting out technical standards, which they may not have the ability to do, but put out an a requirement to have an equitable testing plan. Right. That doesn't tell you what structure you need to have. Uh, so I want to. So before we before we get out of here, because you and I could talk a long time about this, because there's just a lot here. Um, I want to talk about the the part of the paper that's probably least regulatory, at least from an ex ante perspective, right? Because all of all of what we've talked about is 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 truly regulatory. But the last third of the paper sort of spends a lot of time trying to think about liability. And the allocation of responsibility in terms of liability. Why, why is that so important? Why is that so important with respect to low income uh, communities and, 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 and folks? And why is it important that we get that right? I think it's important because if you allow common law to structure liability, that process takes a long time. Mm-hmm. 
even if you're dealing with established statutes that create liability, those statutes were developed with a different technology in mind. We're going to have potentially more players that might be responsible for a technological failure. You, you're going to have the developers of the programs, the vision systems. Uh, people can take uh, an OEM vehicle, uh, an aftermarket uh, upgraded. Those are mm -hmm. called upfitters. And in all of those cases, if there's an accident, you can be sure that those folks are going to be pointing their fingers at each other and trying to limit their own liability. And my thought is a person who is at risk with low income who is injured, mm -hmm. I would like to see them compensated promptly right. and let the business figures sort out the other problems. But what the industry tends to say is, oh, our existing tort law is sufficient. It'll develop over time. But all that does, all delay does is advantage the business concern that has caused the harm. Now, can I play devil's advocate? Sure. If I believe what you've said prior to that in the paper, and I think I do, that is to say that business interests have exercised outside oversized influence in this process. Wouldn't I, in some sense, be happy to have courts in, invert, in, 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 introduce themselves in, or insert themselves into this process so that maybe in that space, the business interests influence will be mitigated to some extent? Well, I think court involvement has helped in civil rights and related issues because the courts have expertise and judgment. But sometimes there's what I consider more of a technical problem. And I'll give you an example. Mm -hmm. uh, before there was electronic signatures, people did not know whether if you signed a PDF or did an encryption, whether that would count for the statute of frauds. Okay. Now, States started to react to that in a common law way in interpreting their statute of frauds. Was it a writing and was or was it not? But it was too important a question to leave for a long term court development. Right. And so in a relatively short amount of time, you had both federal statutes and state statutes that made clear that electronic signatures could be valid for the statute of frauds. And so my concern is the people in the gap. I have a feeling that eventually, with enough cases, our courts would get it right. right. But part of protecting vulnerable communities is not having them wait for 20 because years. Because part of their vulnerability is the time dimension. Yes, I think that, it right. is the time dimension. Right. And they don't have the financial ability to fund the litigation that might develop things. In fact, you'll see a whole bunch of settlements that are right. induced of necessity. No, absolutely right. Absolutely right. Um, we are we are running out of time. This has gone by faster than 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 I had expected. I just thank you for this paper. Um again, thank you for uh expanding the conception of where we ought to be thinking about equity and and uh and the and the problems. Uh I think that this there's a lot of learning in this paper. Um as someone who, who teaches administrative law, as someone who teaches civil procedure, um, there's just a lot here. Uh, and so thank you so much for, for, for this paper. Guys, I hope you will take a look at it. Again, it's called Highly Automated Vehicles and Discrimination Against Low-Income Persons. The author is William H. Wyden, and it is out in the North Carolina Journal of Law and Technology in the fall of 2022. Thanks so much. Thank you, Charlton.
Thanks for joining us for another exciting Miami Law Explainer. If you enjoy our show, leave us a five-star review with your podcast provider and ask your friends to subscribe. You can always drop us a comment at explainer at miami.edu. Our show is engineered and edited by Christopher Alzadi with theme music composed by Rady Kim from the Frost School of Music. I'm your host, Annette Uguez. Today's episode is brought to you by the April 13th and 14th Food, Housing, and Racial Justice Symposium, which will examine lessons and opportunities for addressing hunger in communities of color. For more information, visit miami.law.edu. Thank you.